Amen. I sure appreciate the wonderful words that we've heard here. I, I rejoice in knowing that we can go forward and not go backwards looking at regret. And if we do look back, we can look to the Lord in mercy. Praise the Lord, Brother Luke. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalms 95, I want to read verse 6 and 7 as a starting point as we consider this morning worship. And specifically, under the subject of worship, we want to take up the question of where is the Lamb? I've been thinking about worship a lot in the last few weeks since we haven't been able to worship in our conventional way. And I want to read this text to you to set the stage for what worship looks like or should look like. Psalm 95 and 6, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Notice the specific examples that are given and the references to people of His pasture, sheep of His, of his hand. Webster uh, defines worship as the act of paying divine honor to the supreme being. And it can be in the form of adoration, confession, prayer. And I would like to just kind of define it as connecting with God. Connecting with God in public worship. And there's a lot of different ways that people think that you can connect with God. I want to mention a few of those. But as we set the stage for worship and where is the Lamb, we see that already in the psalm written by David, there's a reference to the sheep of his pasture. So we don't want to lose sight of that imagery. Now if you'll turn to Genesis 22 and 5, that specific question is asked. Genesis 22 and 5, we pick up in the latter half of the verse there where Abraham says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. This is when the Lord has called Abraham to go up into the mount and sacrifice his son. So Abraham doesn't have any doubt about what he's going to do. He's going to pay homage to God. He's going to pay respect to the king. See? Because that's what worship is. Worship by definition. Even the definition of the Hebrew word worship is to bow in homage to royalty. So Abraham understands, I'm going up the mountain with my son to worship, to pay homage, to bow down before the, God, before the Lord God, Jehovah. This is an example of early worship. He says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? You see, even Isaac, he was probably 15 to 20 years old at that time. Isaac questioned their mode of worship because they were missing something from worship. Abraham's going up the mountain to pay respect to God. And when, as he goes up, Isaac says, we can't properly pay respect to God because we're missing something. We're missing a lamb. And of course, Abraham uttered those amazing and glorious words. He said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. I tell you, Abraham had hope as he went up that mountain that God was going to provide. Now, when it comes to connecting with God... There's all types of different ideas about connecting with God and specifically in worship. I think about uh, Michelangelo's 
painting on the Sistine Chapel. There's one segment of it that shows Adam in the painting reaching out with his finger, reaching up with his finger, and an image painted of God reaching down, and their fingers are almost connecting. You know, we don't understand what Adam had. Adam had a connection to God. He was the firstborn of God in the sense of a human being. We know that Jesus was the first begotten of God, that He is the Son of God. But in terms of a creation, Adam, as it says in the, even the um, genealogy there, I think it's in the book of Luke, it says that He was the Son of God. God created Him, you see. And He walked with Him openly. He had fellowship with God. Can you imagine the loss that Adam suffered over losing that kind of fellowship? You see, our desire for that connection with God as Michelangelo displayed there on the Sistine Chapel, our desire stems from the fact that there was a time when Adam himself walked with God. He saw God face to face, and he was connected in a way that we can only imagine of. Now you think about that connection of Adam in the Garden of Eden there before sin came into existence, and then uh, contrast that with coming down to the days of Moses out there on the mountain whenever he went up into the mountain or before he went up in the mountain and God actually appeared to the people. Remember, I've told you that before. Don't lose sight because of the movie, The Ten Commandments. Don't lose sight of what really happened there. God spoke to the people first and it was a fiery earthquake and, and fire up on the mountain and scary. The mountain shook. The only thing holding the mountain together was the power of God. And the people said... Tell God we don't want to hear from Him in that way. What a contrast from walking in the garden in the cool of the day with the Lord to the fiery mountain where they cried out, we don't, we don't want to see this anymore. It's too, it's too much. Now you think about the Greek pantheon of gods. You know, the Greeks saw, God, uh, saw gods as individuals, female and male. And they sought to um, please their gods by various uh, rites and things that they did. Some of them were very vulgar and very uh, twisted and, and horrible. And then you think about uh, the way that the Hindus have depicted God and connecting with God. You know, they've got about 30,000 false gods. And every single one of those false gods, there's not a single, there's not a single Samak God in there. You know, there's not a single smiling God. <laughs> They're all frowning. I say that's a sad and, and judgmental depiction of God, is it not? And then you think in modern days, you have, and this has not just been in modern times, it's been going on for a number of years, but you think about the, the, uh, the Muslim depiction of God, where Allah demands the ultimate price of, of destroying other people to please Him. And you get to go to uh, paradise, and there you're rewarded in paradise because you have destroyed infidels. And then contrast that with postmodern Christianity in America today where they're basically, in a sense, they say there is no God. But in reality, the individual is the God. You understand? They seek to connect to a higher power within. You know, who I am, the glory of me, myself, and I. You know, the unholy trinity. <laughs> me, myself, and I. As opposed to God's holy trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And so you've got all these different ideas and concepts of, of how to worship God and how to please God and how to connect with God. And even in the worship of Jehovah, there's a progression that we see down through the years from a very general worship of God to a very specific worship of God. And it all comes down to one thing. One thing. I'm going to make it very simple for you. It comes down to a lamb. That's simple, isn't it? A cute little fluffy lamb. That's what it comes down to. You want to know about connecting with God? 
why we do what we do, what it all comes down to, it comes down to a lamb. So let's go on a little survey here in our time this morning, back together worshiping and coming before the Lord, bowing before the Lord, kneeling before our maker, and let's search for the lamb. Let's see where the lamb is through the scripture. First of all, we've, we've looked right here in Genesis where Isaac himself was searching for the lamb. He says, where is the lamb? So let's back up just a little bit and consider in Genesis, the third chapter, where we find that Adam has offended God. Adam has uh, broken the covenant that God made with him. And we, I'm going to say, I believe that they were clothed with lambskins. Lambskin is a very soft substance. And I believe our merciful Father in heaven, I don't think he'd have got an old camel hair <laughs> to clothe them. I mean, he could have. <laughs> And it doesn't say, but I personally believe, and I won't take exception to someone if they think it was something else, but I believe the Lord slayed a lamb. And He took the, the, uh, the, the uh, hair, the fur of that lamb, and He made coats of skin for them. That would have been a very comfortable substance for them to have worn. And by the way, it was a tunic that, he, that it says that it covered from neck to knee. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, as a side note, that's a good way... A good uh, guide to go by when we seek to cover ourselves out in public from neck to knee. <laughs> and so in the book of Genesis, the third chapter, and then the fourth chapter, you find where the first murder occurred over what? It occurred over a lamb. Because it says that Abel offered the firstlings of the flock, the lambs that he had. And so his brother Cain, who was the firstborn of Adam and Eve, by the way, his brother Cain killed him over a lamb. Now we jump on forward several, a couple thousand years, about 2,500, 3,000 years to where we have come in Genesis, the 22nd chapter, where Isaac asked the question, where is the lamb? So the point I want you to see, even from the beginning, there was a lamb in the picture. You see, you say, well, I can't find it in Genesis three. Well, you can definitely find it in Genesis four. And you see where Seth, the next son of Adam, he begins to call upon, they begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And you find an ongoing systematic pattern of the patriarchs of these historical figures offering sacrifices to God in the form of a lamb. And you come down to where Isaac asked the question, where's the lamb, father? Now, we know that Abraham and Isaac went on up on the hill there on the mountain. And as he was about to bring the knife down upon his son, there was something that was put in the place of Isaac, the son, as a sacrifice. And you know what it was. It was a lamb. There was a ram caught in the thicket. So you see, worship involved sacrifice. And the word sacrifice, it means to kill. So think about it now. Because our culture today does not have this sense of debt. This, our culture today, and especially in American culture, we don't have a real sense of the debt that is owed to God. But understand that God accepted the death or the killing of a lamb in exchange for the firstborn of Abraham, who was Isaac. Y'all see that? So Isaac got to come off of the altar in this worship service. And Abraham, when I, I think he jumped for joy because Jesus said that in John, over in the book of John when he spoke of Abraham rejoicing to see the day of, of Jesus. He saw the day of Jesus in a figure because he could take this lamb and he could put it down on the altar and kill the lamb and sacrifice to God and take up his own son. See, there was a substitute for the death of his son. So this sense of debt that these families had was not an unusual thing. It's a very strange thing to us because we're so individualistic. But here was a sense of debt. Now why? Why did they have this sense of debt? It's because Adam was, in a, it was the first created of God, the first son of God, if you will, in a, in a natural sense. And Adam brought what? 
death by his disobedience. And I believe with all of my heart that Adam expected to die and Eve expected to die right then and there whenever the Lord came along and said, what have you done? Of course, the Lord knew what they had done. But I believe that he expected to die and yet he lives for 900 years. (laughs) You see, there was an ongoing sacrifice taking place. Firstlings of the flock being brought. God accepting the substitute of a lamb instead of calling in the dead. (laughs) Y'all see that? I hope this puts in perspective what we're doing here today. These thousands of years later, these millennia later, it's very similar to what they did in those days because we stand before the Lord coming to Him to worship and we say, where is the lamb? We'll get to that. (laughs) So there was this sense of debt. Adam incurred the debt of all mankind in sin. And so all of these families, as they go down, it wasn't strange to Noah whenever God said, I'm going to destroy all flesh. You know why? Because God was calling in the dead. God said, mankind owes me. You think about how we, now a lot of people think, well, God owes me. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God doesn't owe us anything. We owe God because we lived in a perfect creation in Adam and Adam sinned. See, and God, and now we owe God. God's the life giver. Adam's the death bringer. You see that? We owe the life giver a debt because of what Adam did. And we owe it personally ourselves because we are Adam. We have descended from Adam. We need to have that sense of debt owed to God. And then God accepts the killing of something, the sacrifice of something in exchange for your life, for my life. What stood in the way of God? Excuse me, what stood in the way of Abraham killing Isaac? A little furry lamb little fluffy lamb. Now we move forward to Exodus, the 12th chapter. And here we have an amazing scene in Exodus, the 12th chapter. We are looking for the lamb, remember? And we're looking in in the form of worship. Where is the lamb? And here in Exodus, the 12th chapter, we have the Lord calling in the dead. The Lord says, it is time for my people to be emancipated, for them to be set free. They are to go free from the bondage of Egypt. And the Lord is calling in the dead on Egypt. You hear me? Now, I want you to see that this is a narrowed focus here. The Lord, for all all these years, for several hundred years, the the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these men have been worshiping the Lord in this general manner of sacrificing the firstlings of the flock, sacrificing the lambs, building altars, and killing lambs on top of those altars. God is pleased by that. God doesn't call in the dead because they're doing that. And now the Lord says, I want my people to go. Pharaoh will not let them go. I'm calling in the dead. You see? Not only did Egypt owe the debt, but Israel also owed the debt too, right? Don't ever forget that. Someone might say, well, yeah, well, I'm a, I, I, they might have said, well, I'm an Israelite, so I'm special, I'm privileged. No, they were just like anybody else. They were just the chosen nation of God. They still owe the debt to God, you see? So we have this narrowed focus where in the law, the Lord codifies. He brings together all of the principles of the worship uh, in, in which involves this lamb, you see? And the Lord says in Exodus, the 12th chapter, he tells them what to do. He says in verse three, speak to the congregation in the 10th day of the month. They shall take them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers. And he says in verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Did you catch that? The firstborn. Did you hear that? He's going to smite the firstborn. Why? Because there was a sense of debt that the firstborn owed to God. See, God exacted the debt on Cain, you remember? Whenever He sent Cain out. You remember that? That's how God exacted the debt on Cain. 
And then he's, you say, well, what happened to Abel? Uh, Cain murdered Abel. And then you have Seth come along, which basically took the place of the first morning. What does Seth do? He's sacrificing lambs. You see? He says, I will, I will call in the debt and smite the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. And the blood of the lamb shall be for you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Let me tell you something. God is calling in the debt. There's no power that's ever existed like the destroyer that was coming upon the land. I tell you, there was nothing that could resist it. I've told y'all before how it used to scare me as I was a six or seven year old child and we'd watch the Ten Commandments and I'd see that scene where the fog was coming through, which was representative of the destroyer. And that scared me. You know, old Joshua was jumping in the, in the movie. Joshua was jumping from step to step and he finally gets in the door where the uh, blood is on the door and he's safe and they hear the cries going on. That was an incredible depiction uh, that Hollywood came up with of that. But I tell you, it was worse than that. I tell you, the destroyer, he didn't just come in the form of a fog. This is the greatest power that's ever existed. And he is about to cut through the greatest military power, the greatest economic power, the greatest social power on the planet like a knife cuts through Hutter. He's just going to cut right through him. Nothing can stop the destroyer. Nothing can keep the destroyer away. And yet we read that there is something that is going to stay the hand of the destroyer. And what is it? Surely he'd set up this powerful lion or the lion's blood, you know? Surely he had set up some great rhinoceros or some maybe dinosaur that was still in existence at this time. You know, take the, the blood of the Tyrannosaurus and I see that teeth-bearing type animal with blood on it. Now what does God say is going to stand between the greatest power that's ever existed to destroy? What's going to stand between that and your destruction? A little fluffy lamb. That just seems crazy, doesn't it? Of all the animals that God would have chosen to be a substitute to pass over in judgment, you see, if the lamb's blood had not been on the doorposts and above the posts, then the, the destroyer would have gone into the houses of the, of the Israelites too. You see that? They had to have the blood applied for the Lord to pass over. And this cosmic force that cannot be stopped, not even Pharaoh's power, not even Pharaoh's astrologers or his magicians, nothing could stay the hand of the destroyer. Except for this lamb. <laughs> Fluffy, cute, mild, meekest of all animals. So what you going to do? You're going to bring the lamb in just pet him real nice and the Lord will see you being kind and petting that little animal. And, and the Lord will say, ah, oh, sweet. I'm going to pass over that house. No. The Lord said, take a knife. Kill that animal. Eat it. Take the blood. Put it on the doorpost and above. You see, in ancient culture, the sense of debt that was owed by the firstborn it's nothing like what we have today. What we think about in our rugged individualism. You see, the firstborn represented the family. God codified this in the Deuteronomic, in the Deuteronomic Code. He, he said that in the Levitical Law. Notice over and over in the Levitical Law that He gives them on Mount Sinai a few months later. He says, you will give shekels for the firstborn. You will give a lamb for the firstborn. The firstborn debt was called in and codified in the law. And the Lord said, I will spare your firstborn children by you sacrificing a lamb. Fluffy little cute lamb. God's message in the Levitical law cannot be misunderstood and the significance of it of the representative firstborn. That's why the law says the firstborn must be redeemed. Those shekels must be paid. You see, it's a family representation. Adam was the father of all of us here and he failed in his covenant that God asked him to keep. Do not eat of the tree of the garden of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. 
So Adam incurred a massive debt. And here, I want you to notice in Exodus, the fourth chapter, to put it even more in perspective about the lamb. Notice in Exodus 4 and 22 what the Lord says to Moses even before he gets back down to Egypt. God says Moses tells Moses, go back down there. And he says, thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. That could not be any plainer, could it? And does that bring it home? He says, Israel is my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son even thy firstborn. You see God's calling in the dead. Let me tell you something. If you live your life in a way, in that sense of the debt that you owe to God, it'll, it'll cause cosmic change in your life. So when bad things happen to you, 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 like many people who think God owes them something, they start shaking their fist at God and they say, oh, why are you doing this to me, Lord, when most of the time he's not? <laughs> but when things happen to you and things go wrong, you just kick back and you say, yeah, you know, I mean, I've had it good for a long time. God's been good to me. I don't deserve anything anyway. I like what Brother Lonnie Mazingo said years ago, and I've, it's never left me. He said, you know, if you look at yourself as a rug and somebody steps on you, what's the big deal? <laughs> yeah, I'll get that one in a minute. Uh, that doesn't mean that you just go around and let people walk all over you. But if, in the sense of, of when you look to God and you think about the debt that you owe God, Abraham was not shocked that the Lord was calling in the debt on his son. But you know, as he walked up that mountain, he, out of his own mouth, he said, God will provide himself a lamb. He had hope, you see. He's thinking, maybe I won't have to sacrifice my firstborn, my lamb, my little Isaac. Maybe I won't have to fight, uh, sacrifice him. Maybe God will provide something. And oh, did he provide something. <laughs> you see, whenever it comes to the offense, when it comes to the debt that owes, somebody has to absorb the loss for the offense. There might be somebody that says, well, you know, why can't God just get over it? Why can't he just forgive and forget and go on? Then you don't understand God. He's holy. He's harmless. He's pure. He's undefiled. His eyes cannot behold sin. He is too pure. And when Adam sinned, Adam incurred that debt and God was offended. Somebody has to bear the loss for the offense. Now, from our standpoint, each other... You can look at that a couple ways. You can say, well, I'll exact payment for the offense that you have caused me. I'll take it out of you. And I'll punish you long enough and hard enough until I think you've sufficiently been punished. And then I'll let the debt go. But the, honestly, a person that takes that approach never lets the debt go. They never let it go. And they become a hard and cruel and calculating, hard-hearted person by looking at debt that way. The other option is to absorb the loss yourself. Aren't you glad? That our Lord in heaven chose that second option. He could exact the debt out on you in the lake of fire for all eternity. But he chose not to. So, forgiveness is not cheap. Calling in the debt is not a cheap thing to do. The truth is, when somebody damages another person, a debt must be paid. The offense has occurred. You either pay it and absorb it, or they pay it, you make them pay it. But somebody's going to pay. How much on a, a more cosmic level are we dealing with God? God has been offended. He created a perfect and innocent world. And God has been offended. And the debt has been incurred. And see, we all incur that debt through Adam. God has a right to call that debt in. But at the last minute, as he goes up there and Abraham raises the knife to slay his son, and he's thinking, this is it. God says, wait, stay thy hand. I've got something to substitute. And he takes the lamb and he substitutes it. Which brings us, in closing, to... 
worship in the New Testament. What stood in the way of the knife of Abraham? It was a little furry lamb. What stood in the way of the great unstoppable destroyer in the land of Egypt? It was just a little furry lamb, the blood of which was put upon the posts of the door. So in the New Testament, we have this... In the Old Testament, you have this general worship that was codified into something very specific in the law of Moses. And now in the New Testament, we have something. We've gone from general, we've gone to specific, now we've gone to spectacular. Spectacular, where it's all been revealed and we understand where the Lamb is. In the New Testament, where is the Lamb? You see, this is a spectacular revelation. And God has expanded our understanding of what it means that it all comes down to a lamb. That God has been offended and He has a right to call in the debt. John says in John the first chapter, the 36th verse, as he's walking there, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. I believe John understood a sense of what Jesus was there to do, even though he faltered later when he was put in prison. He said, Behold the Lamb of God. Why did he say the Lamb of God? Because he knew that He was the sacrifice, that He was the substitute for sins. So the hammer of God's wrath would not fall down upon the anvil of God's judgment and us be crunched in between that. You see, the hammer fell on someone else. Praise God. Jesus said in John the fourth chapter of the 20th through the 26th verses, the woman at the well was there. You see, that was all about worship. She said, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And uh, our fathers told us to worship in this particular way, to bow before God and pay homage to God in this particular way. And then others at Israel say to go down to the temple to to worship. And Jesus Christ said, uh, the Lord seeks such. He says, woman, you know not what you worship. He said, you don't understand worship. Oh, how many children of God out there today don't understand worship because they've forgotten about the Lamb of God. They've forgotten or never heard about the debt that is owed to God. And yet it all comes down to the Lamb, you see. He says, woman, you don't know what you worship. He says, Jesus had a right to talk like that. We don't have a right to talk like that to people. Woman, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Or man, you don't know what you're doing. Jesus had a right to do that. He said, woman, you don't know what you're talking about. He said, the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Not up in this mountain and not over here at Jerusalem anymore, but in spirit and in truth. And I tell you, that Spirit of God, that Holy Ghost, points to one thing. And I tell you, that truth of God points to one thing. And it is to the Lamb. You see, Christ sat at the table in Luke, the 26th chapter, and He said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And by the way, that's after they had observed the Paschal Lamb Passover. Those apostles were sitting there thinking, what's He talking about? They were thinking, where is the Lamb? There's bread here. There's wine here. And Jesus wants to do the Passover again. And He says, take and eat this bread is symbolic of my body. Take and drink this wine. It's symbolic of the blood that flowed through His blessed veins. And I tell you, they had no question when they left that table where the Lamb was. You understand? The Lamb was not on the table. The Lamb was at the table. Christ, our Passover. Our Lamb of God that He's given for our life. For our judgment. What stands between us and the destroyer? I tell you, it's the Lamb of God. Why did the knife not fall down upon Isaac? It's because of a lamb. Why did the judgment, the destroyer, not fall upon the people of Israel and they came out a free, emancipated people? It's because of the lamb. Why does God's wrath and judgment not fall upon you today? You owe Him. Oh, child of God, I owe Him. Oh, what a debt the Apostle Paul 
felt like he owed to God when he recounted the times that he had persecuted the church of God and he'd murdered people and murdered Stephen and all these others that he'd killed. Oh, what a sense of debt he felt that he owed. But praise be to God, he understood something about the sacrifice and the worship and it was the Lamb of God. The Lamb had paid for his sins. The Lamb had paid for his murders. The Lamb had paid for the offenses that he had incurred. The Lamb had paid for the debt that the Apostle Paul owed. And I say that to you today, child of God. You owe God. Aren't you glad that he doesn't do like men, fickle men, and fickle women, and even children, and exact their judgment and their loss out on each other and make you pay until it's done? Aren't you glad we don't have a God that's like that? God has exacted his judgment and taken out his wrath upon his only begotten son. By the way, (laughs) I'm sure you guessed it. He's the firstborn. John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that we would not have to fall under the wrath of God. Psalm 2 and 12 says, speaking of worship, it says, kiss the Son. Isn't that beautiful? You know what that means? We're talking about connecting with God and worship. It all comes down to one thing, a lamb, the Lamb of God. And isn't it beautiful to know that God doesn't just command us to come in and grovel before Him down on our faces on the ground. Oh, spare me, Lord. Oh, don't have judgment upon me, Lord. Isn't it wonderful that in this day and time of social distancing where we are, are wondering if we can shake or fist bump or leg bump or head bump or you know elbow bump or, or actually hug or whatever. We're wondering. What we, the Lord says... You don't come in and grovel before me. We might not be able to hug each other. We might not be able to shake hands with each other at this point. But I want you to know the Lord says not only to come in and shake hands with the Lord, not only to come in and hug the Lord in the sense of worshiping the Lamb, but kiss the Son. There's nothing more intimate than a kiss. You see, the Lord says you could come in and embrace the Lamb. Isn't it good to know that it... (laughs) That it wasn't a velociraptor or a Tyrannosaurus Rex that he required. You imagine trying to catch one of those things? <laughs> or it wasn't, you know, like a cheetah that runs faster than anything on the planet. I gotta run one of those things down to sacrifice? Are you kidding me? No. It was just a little lamb who would not even know what's going on until it was too late. Until the knife plunged down into them. They just lay there in submission. That's why it says in Isaiah, the fifty third chapter, he was led as a lamb before its shearers are dumb. You see, he was slaughtered. Just like a lamb. The greatest power that ever existed submitted himself as a little lamb. Listen, we go from general to specific to spectacular in the New Testament. We go from blood to the burden of the law to the beauty of holiness of the Lord as the lamb. We go from death in Adam to the duty of the law, to the deliverance by Jesus Christ. And this is how we connect with God. You see? We connect with God through a little bitty lamb. And yet this lamb is like none other. He is a lion also. I hope this morning as we've considered where is the lamb, that it will put in perspective what we're doing, why we worship like we do, and what our focus is when we come here. That sense of debt... That presence of the judgment of God has all fallen upon the Lamb of God on the cross. And I'm, I'm here to tell you the good news. No matter what regrets you have, 
no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what you've done or ever will do in the future, the Lord has paid it all through the Lamb of God. We'll give you an opportunity if there's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord in New Testament baptism. Such a wonderful thing to be back in worship with you.